Good morning. My name is Brooks Pepin, and there's my paper. Uh, and this is my bride, Jordan, and our friend, Rachel. So I'm going to be reading uh, the Old Testament reading this morning. It's found in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill, your fill from all of the garden's trees, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day you eat it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the human to see what he would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. So Lord God put the human into a deep sleep and uh, deep and heavy sleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, this one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman, woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. The word of the Lord. Good morning. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 5, verse 18 through 32. Don't drink too much wine. That cheapens your life. Drink the Spirit of God, huge drafts of Him. Sing hymns instead of drinking songs. Sing songs from your heart to Christ. Sing praises over everything, any excuse for a song to God, the Father, in the name of our Master, Jesus Christ. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership— Wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not by getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best in her. Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? No, he feeds and pampers it. That's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it all. What is clearest to me is the way Christ treats the church. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Rachel. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding tw- 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's often while trying to read the Bible to our children that we discover some very interesting things about the Scripture. Sometimes it's through the lens of a child that you all of a sudden see these stories in new ways. Um, Several months ago, Holly was sitting down with Sophia, our oldest, and she was reading to her out of uh, the children's Bible, and, and they were working their way through parts of the Old Testament um, carefully, and, um, and I think they had just finished the story of Samson and Delilah when Sophia stopped Holly and said, Mom, how long until we see a good marriage in the Bible? It's a great question, isn't it? How long until we see a good marriage in the Bible? And this question, I think, is not just a question about the Bible, but really a question about life as a whole. In life, we want to find role models. We want to find icons. And the church has had saints that we can look to and say, look at their lives. The church has also waited until saints died so that we can then say, yes, they did live a good life. This is, of course, the severe disadvantage that we have as Protestants, not having saints and having celebrities instead. Because celebrity preachers are still alive and liable to let you down. But there is this longing in all of us that says, if only there was someone that I could look to that I could say, yes, that's, the, that's how I know what a good marriage looks like. There's the joke about the couple that was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and this young man who had only just gotten married comes up to the couple and he says, sir, tell me the secret, 50 years, that's amazing, how'd you do it? And he says, well, it was very simple. We decided right when we got married that I would take care of all of the major decisions and she would take care of all of the minor decisions. And the miracle is, in 50 years, we haven't had one major decision. (laughs) The truth is, we are all a work in progress, no matter how long we've been married. No matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, we are all a work in progress. And this, I think, is actually what the Bible wants to say to us. The Bible doesn't just contain stories of real-life marriages, real-world marriages, the Bible actually makes no attempt to hide the flaws of its characters from us. If you read through the pages of Scripture, hoping for your children to find a role model in the Old Testament, they will ask you a question like Sophia did. How long until we see a good marriage in the Bible? It's an interesting question. Because when you open up the Old Testament, you have this glorious creational design of marriage in in Genesis 2. We read it this morning. But then very quickly after that, you see the first man and the first woman turning against each other, blaming each other. Shortly after that, you get Noah, who's just completed a massive project at work, you know, saving the world, and he comes home just to relax and blow off a bit of steam and ends up naked and drunk in his living room. I mean, who hasn't done that? And then, and then, and then, you, get, and then you get Abraham who is called of God, called and said, look, your family, from your family is going to come a chosen people. 
And instead, this guy, at the first chance of, of threat, the first sign of a threat, he begins to be intimidated and scared and lies about his wife and says, she's my sister. Because it would save his own neck, but maybe not hers. Real hero of the faith, this Abraham guy. Then you have Moses who after leading the people of Israel out of Egypt struggles and there's some strange episode that happens with his wife Zipporah and they end up, he ends up sending her back to her father's house. You didn't know that, did you? You think, what's going on with these characters in the Bible? And it almost gets worse because then you have David, Israel's greatest king, supposed to be this iconic figure and yet the, the, the narrative that maybe all of us know most, are most familiar with about David, other than David and Goliath, is David and that's Sheba. So the man could slay the giant, but he couldn't stay away from a beautiful girl. Like, oh, we know about that. And all of a sudden, we're getting a little uncomfortable. We're sweating in church. We're thinking, shouldn't the Bible be a little more sanitized than this? Is this safe for the whole family? <laughs> what are these stories? And then, to make it worse, you've got David's son Solomon who decides, to, who decides to interpret this whole marriage thing a little more loosely. Well, there's my wife, but then there's also my wives, and then there's my concubines. By the time you get to the prophets in the Old Testament, marriage is now being used as a metaphor for a covenant unfaithfulness before God. So prevalent was adultery that the prophets could say, you know adultery? Yeah, that's what you've done to God. And all the people would say, oh yeah, we know adultery. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like this strange example from life that they were like, adultery? Who would do that? As if this was a you know, puritanical people, which is an anachronistic historical reference. But okay. <laughs> so what do we do with this? We've been in this series called These Four Walls, and it's about the relationships in the house of God or in the household of faith. And so in week one, we talked about friendships. That's something for all of us. We've all got friendships. And we talked about how the, the necessity of forgiveness, even in, in, in friendships. And then in week two, we talked about finding a spouse. We talked about dating, and all the single people said, whoop, whoop. Okay, fine. But... <laughs> But we talked about it last week, and we talked about the struggle with that. But you know what? In each of these weeks, you need to know a few things. First of all, it's very hard for me to preach topically. That's the first thing you need to know. I like expounding a piece of scripture, and we will get to, more, to longer series of that. We've done 18 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Before that, we did the book of Acts. We've, we've been through large chunks of scripture. Once in a while, we turn our attention to a series of topics. And this is, this is difficult for me because I'd much rather stick with a, a, a specific text, which is why when we, we talked about this series and saying, all right, it's going to be about relationships, I thought immediately of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Because the wisdom literature in the Old Testament has this tradition of holding up ideals and then holding up reality. I've told you this story, but I had a seminary prof who said, Proverbs says, do these things and life will work out this way. And Ecclesiastes says, we did and it didn't. And that's part of how scripture comes to us. So even when we hear these stories and we see these stories of, of, of imperfect marriages and imperfect families, it's the Bible's way of saying, look, this is how we enter into this journey of following God, that we will always have this tension between this ideal that Proverbs says, yeah, marriage works this way, Proverbs 31, this is how it all looks. And then we say, okay, and name me that woman in one of the biblical narratives. 
And all of a sudden you realize that there is this conflict between the Bible's ideals and the Bible's narratives. But it's not a conflict, if you think of it this way, that really what the scripture is intent on showing us, the whole drama of the Bible is to show us that God works within his world to rescue and redeem it. That the story of the Bible is a story of God bringing back to himself all that was already his. It's a story of the God who comes into the garden looking for Adam and Eve. It's, a story, it's not the story of a God who looks at human sin and says, eek! But it's humans who look at our own sin and say, I gotta hide. And God who says, where are you? Come on, come on, I'm not scared of this. It's God who says, where is the mess? Where is the pain? Where is the brokenness? I'm looking for it. Not to scold you for it. Not to shame you for it. I'm looking for it so that I can heal it. And all of these stories are not hidden from us in the Bible because we ultimately see what Jesus does with all of this. So our gospel reading this morning was Jesus at this wedding at Cana. The church takes this story and says, listen, because Jesus, as his first public miracle, blesses a wedding feast, the church says, this is why we think marriage is a sacrament. In fact, you'll see in the Book of Common Prayer as an introduction, sort of prologues to weddings, you'll say, which our Lord blessed at his first miracle at the wedding of King. Why is it? Because we look at the story as not just an, an incidental story in the life of Jesus, but an intentional story of Jesus saying, let me go and find this thing, this place where so much human brokenness collides, marriage. And let me come into it and let me do my first miracle there. John's gospel in many ways parallels Genesis. And so Genesis starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John's gospel begins with, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's paralleling Genesis 1. Could it be that John is paralleling Genesis 2 and 3 by saying, you know, the brokenness that entered our world through man and woman being torn apart, could it be that Jesus, when he steps into the world, does his first miracle by putting marriages back together? Could it be that this is what John is trying to show us? This parallel of Genesis and John. And there's so many things we can say from John's gospel about this story. But I want to say just one thing. I think the story of Jesus at the wedding is Jesus' way of inverting our cultural expectation about marriage. In other words, we sort of think the way the master of the feast thought. Serve the good stuff first, and when everybody's too drunk to care, bring out the cheap stuff. You all been to parties like that, okay? Don't go to too many of them, but... And he says, Jesus, you flipped it. You flipped it. You made the good stuff come to those who wait. You made the best stuff ready for those who weren't too drunk to care. You said... The richest and the best comes to those who wait for it. Jesus has flipped the cultural expectation of marriage. All around us, we hear messages that say, get it while it's good, enjoy it while you're young, have fun, sow your wild oats while you're single, someday you'll have the old ball and chain. (laughs) This is what we hear. Think about how marriages are depicted on TV. 
doesn't exactly make you want it. It just looks like a drag. And so you feel, those of you that are single, you're like, yeah, I'm not really excited to do that. And I've talked to young people who kind of do this cost-benefit analysis, you know. <laughs> Marriage is going to cost me this, and I don't see the benefits, so I'm going to go ahead and wait. And Jesus says, I've come to do something extraordinary. I've come to do something miraculous. I've come to take ordinary water and make it the richest wine. I've come to take simple, ordinary lives and make it the kind of relationship that can get richer and sweeter and better. Now, my saying that this morning is going to provoke a lot of pain in some people. Some of you are sitting here and you've, you've had marriages that fell apart. Or you're sitting in a marriage that you, you think is on the brink of falling apart. And you want, everything in you wants to say to me this morning, liar, that's not true. Because look at my story and look at my life. And I understand that. And I think more than me understanding that, I think the Lord acknowledges the brokenness that we feel and that we experience, the pain that this stirs up for a lot of us. But I want us to just kind of journey with this, through this just a little bit this morning. And those of you that are single, don't check out on me because you know people who are married. And perhaps someday you'll be married if that's something you want or choose, feel led to. But either way, as a community of the household of God, the same way that our married congregants didn't tune out when we talked about dating last week, in the same way, now we as a community of faith, we say, okay, I'll, I'll listen to, to this on behalf of maybe someone else. Marriage, I want to say three things quickly, and then I want you to hear a testimony this morning that will encourage us all. Marriage is about oneness. There's a myth that kind of happens with marriage, maybe with with us when we're not married, and that is that the myth is that, that um, if I marry the right person, we'll always connect. That really marriage is about saying, I'm this, she's this, or he's this, and we just got to find each other, and once we find each other, we'll make this beautiful picture together. Isn't that beautiful? It's just awesome. I just got to find the right, I just haven't found the right fit. I haven't found the right person. Just, we, we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't get along, we don't, you know. And the myth is that marriage is, the oneness that happens in marriage is really the result of finding the right sort of person. I wonder if it's a bit more like this. You know, so, <laughs> so marriage, I know, I've even got purple and blue. Thank you, Sarah, for bailing me out of this yesterday. Where we say, okay, so here we are, two just globs, you know, blobs. And that part of the lifelong journey of marriage is learning to be able to grow together and to know one another and to learn each other and to be attentive to each other. I, th- I think in some ways all of us kind of have this internal box in our heart hidden somewhere that maybe we've never articulated, but a box of fears, a box of desires, maybe a box of dreams, a box of disappointments, a box of fears. And we've got this little hidden thing here. And you can always tell it's there because, you know when you have a conflict or a fight and the fight seems way worse than what it's actually about? You're like, dude, I just said let's have Chinese instead of Italian. Like, what in the world just happened there? Why do you all of a sudden, why are you, why are you saying, you, I don't think you can cook? Like, I just asked if you wanted to get Chinese food tonight. 
I'm a failure. (laughs) And somehow we discover that, oh, there's just like little fear that's been hidden inside that when I said that, that pushed on that. And a lot of times what we want to do, because we don't like seeing other people's pain, a lot of times what we want to do is just run away from that, you know? So it's like you, you, you discover this thing and, you know, Russ says something and June's upset by it and Russ says, okay, well, okay, well, keep going. as soon as you're done, let me know. Instead of, really, which you've never done, Russ, I know, you never have. Instead of saying, you know what, this is all of a sudden a moment to know the other person, to see the other person. And the same is true if you're the, if you're the person that you're like, oh, he said this or she said this and I just, uh. one of the things we talk about when I do premarital is to ask couples to say, okay, when you feel those triggers happening, it's a, good, it's a good moment to ask the Holy Spirit to say, what is that hitting in me? What's that pushing in me? What fear? What desire? What, what disappointment? What pain? What hurt? And, and, and as you locate it, to then be able to trust the other person with seeing it and knowing it. And to say, you, you, you know why that struck me funny? Because it hits this fear that you're going to walk out on me. Or it hits this fear that I'm never going to be good enough for you. Or it hits this, this desire that I have to be this kind of... Do you see what I'm saying? And all of a sudden you realize that this is not just a conflict to be resolved, but an opportunity for intimacy. That it becomes this moment to say, this is a chance for me to see you and for me to know you and love you. This is a chance for you to know me and to see me and to love me. So when you feel things that trigger a, 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 you know, a, a tension to say, wait a minute, this could be a moment. And I think if you think of it as being this lifelong journey of walking toward oneness, rather than saying, I can't believe we're fighting about this again, if I just was with the person that fit me better, this wouldn't happen. That's a lie. Stanley Hauerwas, the great theologian at Duke, says very provocatively, as is everything he says, that you always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person. Now, Hauerwas, if you've read his memoir, was actually married to a woman who was severely mentally ill. And, and a few years into their marriage, while he was in graduate school getting his MDiv and all this stuff, she's sort of wigged out and had visions of aliens coming to... You know, I mean, it was just, you know... He'd wake up in the morning, he'd go to bed at night, not sure if she would attack him in the middle of the night, and he stayed with her their whole marriage. It's a remarkable story in his memoir, peppered with choice language, because uh, that's Hauerwas, if you know him, or know of him. But there is something to this idea of saying that everybody marries the wrong person. <laughs> this, is, this is not about just finding the ideal fit. This is about recognizing that everybody's broken, And that the journey of two people becoming one is a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And you cooperate with the Spirit through this patient, attentive work. But secondly, and this leads very closely to the next thing, the second thing is that marriage is about forgiveness. That's something they won't tell you. Marriage is about forgiveness. How unromantic is that? The myth here is that if I had a different spouse, I wouldn't be dealing with all of this. And probably all of you in the room could make a short list, maybe some not so short, and say, here's what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with this and this, and I have to put up with this, and I have to put up with this, 
And if I was married to someone different, I wouldn't be dealing with all of this. Can I say something to you? Everybody is going to deal with something from another person because we are all broken people. This lie that says to you, if I had someone else, I wouldn't be dealing with all of this junk is not a truth that comes to us from the stories of Scripture. Who would you like? A man like David? Wasn't he great? Oh, sorry, Bathsheba. Yeah, I forgot about that. How about Moses? What a... Moses! So articulate. First five books are named after him. You see, I think this is why the Bible gives us the stories it does. To show us that wherever you are, whoever you're with, marriage is going to be about, at some level, forgiveness. And here's the thing about forgiveness, okay? C.S. Lewis wrote this brilliant essay about the difference between forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, and asking someone to, to accept your excuses. He says, most of the time when we ask for forgiveness, we're really asking someone to accept our excuses. And we do this all the time, don't we? Oh, I, I'm so sorry. I was just, I just had a long day. That's why I snapped at you. Certainly not because you're also a selfish person, right? So we don't ever ask for forgiveness. We ask for someone to accept our excuses. Well, it's just a busy season. Well, I'm just a bit stressed. Well, I'm just a bit tired. And those may all be true, but that's not getting to the root of the thing, is it? This is why we do confession every week. Because we believe as Christians that we're not afraid of this word sin. But you know, you'll find a lot of people, there's a lot of chatter out there that wants to move us from a feeling of unworthiness to a feeling of worthiness without actually making us confess our sin. And so we say to someone, you feel so ashamed and you feel so unworthy. Let me just tell you that I accept you and you're worthy. Done. Except it doesn't work like that. That the only way you move from unworthiness to worthiness is through experiencing the miracle of forgiveness. But you never experience the miracle of forgiveness until you're willing to confess the brokenness of your own sin. Does this make sense? And I, I'm telling you, we're living in a day and an age that is afraid of this word sin, that loves to talk about vulnerability and shame and unworthiness, but will not make us say the word sin. You cannot know the beauty of grace unless it is set against the backdrop of brokenness. You cannot know the beauty of grace unless it's set against the backdrop of brokenness. So when you ask one another for forgiveness, make it real. Make it count. Don't do the cheap thing of asking them to accept your excuses because one day you'll do the inexcusable. One day you'll realize that what I've really done is inexcusable. And I don't have any more excuses to ask you to accept. Instead, what I must throw myself at the mercy of is the God who offers forgiveness. Can I tell you that forgiveness is what it means to be loved? But you haven't known love if you've never put yourself at somebody else's mercy and say, I confess the inexcusable I can only ask for your forgiveness. And when the other person gives you that, that's when you know you've been loved. That's the gospel in action. 
That's the gospel at work. Marriage, finally, here is about, it's going to sound Sunday schoolish, but here we go. Marriage is about Jesus. Why do I say this? Because I think the biggest myth, the biggest lie out of all of these lies is the lie that says Jesus is not present in my marriage. Sure, he's there in your marriage, Glenn. You're the pastor. Sure, he's there in my small group leader's marriage. They seem to have it together. But he's not there in my marriage because Jesus could not stand the junk I'm dealing with. And maybe we'd never say it, but this is how we feel. We feel sure that Jesus, there's no way. Jesus, you're not here. You're not in the midst of this. You're not in the midst of that. And yet, a wedding at Cana might have been the last place we'd expect to find Jesus too. And when his mom comes to him and says, son, can't you do something about this awful wine? And they've run out. He says to her, woman, why do you bother me with such things? This is Jesus, so socially awkward, kind of rude sometimes, you know? It does not seem interesting. I think Jesus responds this way because this is how we think God responds to our requests. I think Jesus responds initially this way to say, this is how you think I respond, isn't it? That when you come to me and you say, Jesus, will you do something about this? Will you help me this? That you are sure that Jesus looks at you and you pray and says, why are you bothering me with But the beauty is the story in John's gospel doesn't end with Jesus saying, why do you bother me with this? The story ends with Jesus actually going and fixing it, stepping in. The miracle is that God actually does care, that God actually does rescue, that God actually does redeem. Jesus... lives all of these things we're talking about. Talk about this box of desires and fears and saying we need to ask our, our spouses and learn to express these desires and express these fears and to ask because it's a way for intimacy to take place. We get that. Jesus does this with his Father. He says, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Sometimes you say, well, I've asked my spouse for something, and it never changes. They are not different than how they have been. Nothing changes, right? Does Jesus know what it feels like to ask and to have that request be denied? Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Fast forward a little bit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you sit in it, In a marriage that feels forsaken, you can know that Jesus has sat in that depth. And then Jesus from the cross says these words, Father, forgive them. It's Jesus that doesn't just call us into this life of love and forgiveness. It's Jesus that makes this life possible. It's Jesus that makes this love possible. I think this is why we cannot expect counselors outside the household of faith to talk to us about sin. What good would it do for a counselor who doesn't affirm or confess Christ, what good would it do them to talk to you about sin? They don't have any tools for sin. What good would it do for a therapist or a psychologist to say, I think there's something here called guilt. There's no tools without Christ 
That's why I appreciate the Christian men and women who study and combine the gospel with psychology and counseling and all this stuff because now we can say here's the human condition and here are all the marvelous ways that Jesus is enough for you. Here's all the ways that Jesus brings healing into it. This morning, everything I'm saying to you would just be words, if not for a testimony that we're going to hear. And so I want to invite some dear friends of mine up. Many of you know James and Sarah Martin. James, if you'd grab that microphone there. Thanks for the Play-Doh. All right, so give us, um, give us a little backdrop. When did you guys meet? When did you get married? I'll let you start. <laughs> Holy goodness, I'm nervous. Um, we met almost nine years ago, about eight and a half years ago, at Compassion International, where James currently works, and I used to work there on my first day of work. And what was your other question? And uh, so you met nine years ago, dated for? We dated for two years. Two years. On again and off again. Yes, I know that one. Um, <laughs> been there, my friend. Um, and then got married in what year? 2007. 2007, and I was in the wedding. You did the music? I also did the music, that's true. It was a beautiful day. And, uh, well, the mu- I mean, yeah, anyway. <laughs> I'm just trying to help them relax a little bit. That's right. <laughs> and um, so 2000, when did you say? Seven. Seven is when you got married? Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. And then what, what happened? What was kind of the, the next thing? James, you want to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me fill in a little bit there too. Um, we met at Compassion on the third floor of Building B, for those of you that work at Compassion. And uh, it's an interesting story because I went to college in the same town that Sarah went to high school, and so I knew a lot of her friends there. Never met her out in Pennsylvania. Uh, we met at Compassion in Colorado in 2005. And uh, we just hit it off right from the start because we you know, had like friends, uh, common places that we knew of, and it was just very easy conversation and um, led very quickly to a dating relationship and connection and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So... Um, so fast forward, uh, two years later, we got married in 2007, and this is where um, kind of the story um, began. So my story is uh, at the age of 12, I was uh, sexually abused, and I was in a family where I experienced extreme neglect and abandonment and um, mental or uh, emotional abuse. And so, at the age of 12, in hindsight, after all the um, work that we've done and I've done, um, I can confidently say that I was a sexual addict at the age of 12. And so, I brought that into our marriage. And I was up front with Sarah in our dating relationship, and she knew, you know, the things that I struggled with. Um, But I don't think either of us knew the depth to which that had um, tackled my soul and the depth of the pain that I had inside me. So, within six months of our marriage, um, we were in a crisis because of my addiction. And 
you know, we don't have enough time to talk about all the details, but within five years of our marriage, we had experienced three crises. And it was all due to the sexual addiction that I had um, encountered at a young age as a young boy. And um, so we had to deal with that as a married couple. And Sarah, what, I mean, I, you know, say what you're willing to hear, but in, in, in those moments, maybe in the first crisis, I mean, what, what were some of the things that you thought or as you processed it? Or, you know? Well, I think my um, initial feelings... Um, I don't deserve this. Peace out. I'm leaving. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that could sum it up. I, it, it would have been really easy to leave. And uh, many times in those moments of despair, um, anytime I went before the Lord, I never felt at peace about leaving. The Holy Spirit always kept me in my marriage. And um, I think sometimes people who know our whole story have asked us, how are you still together today and things like that. And I can, I think, honestly say it's only the Lord that has kept us together. Um, and really good counselors and really good community and really faithful community and really amazing um, counseling yeah. Christian counseling. Right. Talk, talk to us a little bit, both of you, just about what the road of recovery has involved, has, has taught you along the way, that, that maybe that we don't hear enough of in church about this. You hmm. know. One of the biggest things for me that was so helpful was, has, I think I've been in or was in a group of uh, therapy group for women for five years. Um, that ended about a year and a half ago that I was in this group and, um, with an amazing leader and that, and she just, um, she had gotten to a point of ending her group. And so I would probably still be part of that today. Um, and one thing that I heard that has always stuck with me in moments of just wanting to leave my marriage was it would have been really easy to just trade that set of pain for another set of pain. Um, we have children, things like that, uh, just trade, just wanting to jump, just leave, mm-hmm. um, because that felt really easy in certain moments, but knowing that I could trade that for just a whole new bat set of pain, uh, or trusting that unsettled peace in my heart, like not having peace in my heart about leaving and trusting the Lord mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he had a, has a bigger plan, mm-hmm. that was one piece that counseling really has always stuck with me, mm-hmm. that I had that choice to mm-hmm. trade yeah, trade one set of pain mm-hmm. for another set of pain. And you mentioned something when we were talking about this this week about what kind of made it more tempting to trade this pain, you know, was things you'd see, social media or things. Yes. <laughs> you know, in those really dark days, it was really encouraging to sign on to Facebook and see, you know, the flowers that someone's husband had brought in her for no reason. Um <laughs> The, you know, the hear all about the breakfast in bed that someone's husband had brought her. Um, just the amazing, you know, amazing things that people were experiencing in their lives and knowing I, I did not have that in my life. And I didn't have hope of that in my life in those dark days. Um, and so 
those moments it felt easy to just leave. And one, one time I had it when one counselor said, it's really easy to leave when you're angry and hurt. But it's when you're vulnerable and you're honest and you're honest about your pain is when it's not so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, or if the other person is willing to, to get help or, or if the other person, um, yeah, is willing yeah. to get help, then to me that offered hope. James yeah. was, has always been willing. Um, yeah. And so maybe James say a bit about um, the 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 road, you know, recovery. We've walked through this together yeah. for a while. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's not overnight. Um, you know, you look at the counselors, the pastors, the good friends that we had around us, and we couldn't have done it without them. Um, I couldn't have done it without them. We couldn't have done it without you guys. Um, but yeah, it's a journey. It takes a it takes a long time. It takes a lot of hard work. Um, but one of the, the best key points that I remember uh, in counsel that I received was that this isn't you, that this isn't how God designed you to be, and this isn't your true self. Um, the part that was acting up was the, you know, the 12-year-old boy that was abused and battered and bloody from his experiences as a child. And so it was now my goal to come and heal that little boy and help him raise up inside of me uh, to become the man who God designed me to be. And like I said, you know, she mentioned the Holy Spirit. It was a combination of, you know, through the process, there were certain people that would offer advice. You need to read your Bible more, pray more, fast more, go to church more, all that. Well, I did all that, and, and it didn't work. Right. And, uh, but, it, I mean, that's a huge piece of it. The Word of God it was huge and, and um, crucial to the healing. But the professional Christian counseling was huge. Um, the unconditional love that... I and we received from pastors and friends and these counselors was just um, crucial to our being able to be together today mm. and overcome what we had been through in the first, you know, yeah. five years of our marriage. Yeah. So. I have more to say. Yeah. I have more to say about that. <laughs> um, and one thing, what is forgiveness, when you talked about forgiveness, and um, a book that I read that I would highly recommend is called Choosing Forgiveness by Nancy Lee DeMoss. And a dear friend of mine gave that book to me, and that was life-changing for me. Because I think there were days when it was easy to say, um, I'm going to forgive him because that's what the Bible tells me to do. But there was no part of my heart that wanted to ever forgive James. Um, But that book brought the truth of Scripture to my heart. Mm. And so um, I think... I think being here today feels like such a miracle. For those of you who know our story, this is a miracle. And so um, today I have just felt so emotional. And I feel like it's because this is like the biggest answer to prayer, just sitting here. And so, but I'd highly recommend that book. (laughs) (laughs) James, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've mentioned just the support we had, but Sarah and I were talking about this last night and what we wanted to share, and we do feel like this is a stepping stone to sharing our story with a message that never give up in your marriage, um, because we've seen the darkest of the dark in our marriage, but we never gave up. Um, The Holy Spirit, I remember some dark nights by myself with the Lord where it was just, you know, I'm an analytical person, and I couldn't figure the way out of this. I couldn't figure out how to make our marriage work, how to 
um, overcome what I was dealing with, but the Holy Spirit just whispered to me and said, I am with you. Don't make any changes. You will get through this, and you will see a better day. And so that was huge. And so a couple other things um, that I just want to mention is in my marriage, um, I've experienced the unconditional love of God through Sarah. And so if that's a word of advice that we can impart um, here today is that in marriage you have the opportunity to give that unconditional love as Sarah did to me. And then you also have the opportunity to receive that as I was able to from Sarah. Um, And then finally, we just look at where we are today. And we're not perfect. You know, you guys may look at our Facebook accounts and we have nice pictures up there and stuff, but... You you are bringing flowers. Yeah, but we we do have our days. You know, even just yesterday, we felt we had a disagreement and we felt attacked in preparing for today, but um, we were able to sit down and talk about it last night and reconnect and just um, be on the same page, be in unity. And um, the point there being is that we are where we are today, and we've got two beautiful children, and God has done a miracle in our lives and our family's lives. And so don't ever give up. Amen. I want to thank you guys for the courage, the honesty, for being up here. We love you. It's one thing when we talk about grace, it's another thing to see it playing out. Would you bow your heads? We mean it. We mean it when we say that the grace of God has the power to transform lives. We mean it. We mean it when we come to the table and we say, it's okay to say to God, I've got nothing. We mean it. Because when we say, I've got nothing, I've hit the bottom, it's when we find that Jesus says to us, I am everything that you need.